I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The critical reception was pretty brutal, I thought. It felt like sort of being beaten up in public. It was very painful. Hello, and welcome to the second season of Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. When The Girl on the Train came out in 2015, going straight to number one on global bestseller lists and going on to sell 20 million copies, Paula Hawkins, its author, was pitched like a debut. But in fact, Paula had written several previous novels, sort of romantic comedies, under a pseudonym, Amy Silver, the last of which hadn't done well at all, leaving Paula feeling seriously rejected. What I love about talking to Paula is that even though she's now one of the most famous thriller writers alive, she remains extremely cautious and circumspect, with really vivid recollections of how it felt before she was successful, and I guess perhaps even more importantly, how it felt before she started to really love what she was writing. Her latest book, A Slow Fire Burning, such a gorgeous title I think, is out now and is I think her best yet, a really clever mystery with a lot of subverted tropes and jokes about book writing. So we had a really interesting chat about that. We talked too about not being able to give publishers what they want, the horror of bad reviews, yep she's had them, and the book that the girl on the train very nearly was until another author wrote it. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho writers are with you for every word. They're all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals, whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers, and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses, and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style, and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. 
Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write off. I'll put that in the show notes. So let's listen to Paula. I wanted to start actually by talking to you about Amy Silver, um, which was your pseudonym for your books before The Girl on the Train. Why did you use a pseudonym? The first Amy Silver book, which was called Confessions of a Reluctant Recessionista, was not my idea. Um, a publisher approached me via my agent. I had an agent because I'd done a non- uh, nonfiction book. And they had an idea. They wanted somebody to write them a novel, sort of a chiclet in inverted commas, you know, a sort of romantic comedy, set against the backdrop of the recession, so that the financial crash. They had, they had the idea with like a young woman who's lost her job in the city and has fought on hard time. She's used to quite a glamorous life and now she's got to make do blah, blah. You can kind of see how it would go. But they, and they, they asked me to write it. So none of it came to me and it very much didn't feel like my idea. It was kind of like a ghostwriting project, I guess. So I didn't want my name on it because my own name, because it just really didn't feel like me very much. It was, I enjoyed doing it. It was fun, but it wasn't mine. So I put a, uh, we, I thought up a pseudonym and that book did kind of okay. And so they came back and asked me to do another one. So at that time, they didn't have an idea. They just said, can it be set at Christmas? So I did something set at Christmas and then I did another one and then I did another one. And as I said, they were really enjoyable to write. I'd learned an awful lot doing them, but they never felt, it didn't ever feel right in that kind of genre, in that space. It wasn't where I was comfortable. It wasn't the kind of thing I, I tended to read a lot of, and the storyline kept getting darker and darker. It was, it was very clear that I wanted to go in a different direction. Mm. When you were first asked, were you still working as a personal finance journalist? Or I was, yeah. Yes, yes, I was. I'd had some fiction ideas, but not, never really followed through on them. I didn't have any great confidence in myself as a fiction writer. So I'd spoken to my agent about doing something, but they never actually got on with it. So I was still working as a personal finance journalist. I was freelance at that point. I was writing about money and property mostly, but I was a bit dissatisfied with it. I felt like my journalistic career wasn't really going anywhere. So I was casting around for something else to do. And the yeah. thing, so it was very fortuitous, really. I was lucky. A lot of wannabe writers would think, gosh, it would just be my dream to be published in any way, in any form. At least that would be a start. Um, is that how you felt at all? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, 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 for me, it was actually quite liberating to be given an idea. I didn't have to put my heart and soul on the page. So it felt like a journalistic commission. It felt quite familiar to me. They were like, go away and write this, which is what you've had as a journalist, don't you? You're, they tell mm-hmm. you what the story they want and you go away and you do it. So it felt like that kind of commission. And, and in that sense, I, wasn't, I didn't feel so self-conscious about putting myself on the page. I could, there was kind of the distance, which also the pseudonym helped with. There was a real distance between me and what, what I was writing, which at the time, because I lacked confidence in myself and, and my ideas, my fiction writing ideas, that was very useful. And then I had four novels in which I could kind of explore character and, and, and structure and all these things in what felt for me as a relatively safe space. I'm making this sound a lot happier than it was because actually the experience <laughs> got less and less happy as it went through. But looking back on it, it was incredibly useful and I was incredibly fortunate to be given that opportunity. Yes. I mean, I wanted to ask you about whether it was enjoyable when you were doing it. I've read the first one, Confessions of the Reluctant Recessionista, and 
listening to and reading previous inter- interviews with you, I sort of got the impression that maybe you no longer thought it was any good or something. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really funny. Um, I mean, it is obviously very different from your Paul Hawkins books. Um, yeah. But I, 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 you know, I thought it was really slick and really funny. And um, it's, it, I think you wrote it in six weeks or something, didn't you? And it, I, I think I was, I think I was given eight weeks. I mean, that's not the whole thing, but that was the first draft. Was was you know, it was incredibly far to have to do something like that. And it's like yeah, it's like a weird relationship with them because they just feel like it's from a different kind of era. And mm-hmm. as I said, I never felt completely confident, comfortable, sorry, in that that kind of romantic comedy space. Apart from possibly Bridget Jones's diary and a couple of Jojo Moyes books, which I you know which I love, I don't read that kind of fiction very much. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I really felt just not comfortable. It wasn't quite right. I mean, the most shocking thing in in that book actually is that there's a property that sells towards the end of the book for two hundred and fifty. No, I think sorry, the guide price is two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and then it sells for three fifty <laughs> or something. And it's like this really well done up. <laughs> property in Ladbroke Grove and I think yeah. oh my gosh that that is a very <laughs> aging detail <laughs> so the first one I think you're saying was was quite enjoyable but then that became yeah. less so yeah the both was enjoyable as I said you know they'd kind of given me the architect's story so I didn't have to, all I had to do was kind of fill things in and make it come to life after that the grief became much more general go away do do it a heartwarming Christmas romance I think was the second one well, the heartwarming Christmas romance ended up having somebody who was killed in a diving accident. It, it did end up with a with a sort of romance, but I was kind of pulling away from it all the time. It was like I don't want to do something heartwarming. Heartwarming is not my mm. it, it's not my jam at all. So I think after that, they became more and more difficult. And by the time I wrote the fourth one, which took me two years to write, I felt like I was being pulled in in a direction I didn't want to go. And I was really resisting it. And as a result, what turned out was not successful. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what the publishers wanted from me was not what I was wanting to give them. And I think that became problematic. I know you said the fourth one, the reunion bombed. Did you Mm. not give them a fifth one? No. After that bombed, I was trying to think about this um, this morning about how exactly the the events were. When I think I knew at a certain point via my agent that it was going to bomb. Because you know in... You sometimes go in advance. If say the supermarkets and the the big bookshops are not buying it to stock, you know that it's not going to sell because it's not on the shelves. Mm. So I knew quite a long way before it was published that it wasn't going to sell. It's such an awful feeling. I was so I'd worked really hard on it. I had tried to do something. I, I guess I felt you know more ambitious, more rich, more textured, what have you. And so I guess there was there came a point that I was thinking, well. This is not working. I have to do something else. I desperately didn't want to go back to being a journalist full time. Oh, really? Um, Why not? Oh, I just felt like that I'd left that now. What I wanted to do now was write fiction. I did, it, it would have felt like a complete kind of failure. Not that being a journalist was a failure, but for me personally, I felt like I had moved on from that, that kind of chapter in my life. I didn't want to go back to it. Mm. Um, so I, I had some ideas and I started talking to my agent about those ideas and I at this point, if I'd had like low self-confidence earlier on, that it was way worse by this point. I was sort of rock bottom by this point. But I have a really great agent and she was very encouraging about a number of ideas I had. One of which was this drunk woman who couldn't remember what she did last night kind of thing. It was, about, it was all about the memory loss. And I had been trying to work out one story with that. 
kind of half written it, not happy with the way the plot was going, and then came up with a thing of, about seeing something from the train journey and sort of building around that. So what was it like putting pen to paper, as it were, when you were in that mindset? And also, I actually think your thrillers are often quite funny, but obviously not in the same way that the Amy Silver books are funny. And I wondered whether it was hard to leave behind that because some people, I think sometimes that type of humour might feel easy to rely on and quite difficult to leave behind. When you started writing Darker Things, did that immediately feel more comfortable? It definitely felt more comfortable. I definitely didn't feel like I had that, you know, I was talking about how that I had sort of resistance to what I was doing before. I didn't have that resistance anymore. Now I could just go into the dark, I could give into the dark side as much as I wanted to. <laughs> and I think there was an element of catharsis because I was at such a low point. But I'm writing about a character who's in the You could just put it all in, put it all in there, but it, give it all to Rachel. All that sort of disappointment with yourself. And I mean, obviously, it was her kind of disappointment is different. It's an entirely different thing. It was a personal thing, and it was tied up with all sorts of other issues. But you can, you can just feed all that stuff into the character when you're feeling bad about yourself. I think the, the weird thing about talking about the work you've done is I'm probably like looking at it in a way in which it didn't happen at all. I now look back on it and think I put all this up. I don't remember if it actually felt good at the time because I still, I didn't know the book was going to be successful. I didn't know it was going to work. I was just desperately trying to make something work, anything. And you said that you tried Rachel in a few different scenarios. Do you remember what those were? She wasn't Rachel then. She was somebody else, but she, uh, she was, uh, she was the, the alcoholism and the memory loss was in it. It was a story about a woman whose sister is murdered. And actually, while I was writing it, I think Rosamund Lipton's book, Sisters, came out and I was like, damn it, she's written my novel. <laughs> you know, sometimes that happens to like, oh. yeah, yeah. Not that, you know, the stories were exactly the same, but it was like, hmm, yeah, maybe this is not. And, you know, I think I've been read that and I was like, okay, right, um, let me try and think of something else. So I, I knew that the character was right. I just had to get her in the right situation. She was a, she was a character in search of the story, which is actually what happens to me a lot. I have characters and I just don't know where to go with them. And it often, it, that's one of the things that I often take me a lot of time is to figure out the right thing. And I have for ages, I've, Lizzie, my, sorry, my agent and I had talked about the train thing because we both like said, oh yeah, it's a cool idea. You could be like, oh, you could glimpse them in an act of violence or, you know, something. We'd had sort of vague conversations about how it might, how that would, you know, I mean, it's not, again, it's not original, it's rear window, isn't it? So, but done on the commute, we were talking very much about like, that commuting thing, that very London commuting thing. So it was an idea that was bobbling around. And I think this is what happens to you as a novelist. You have ideas that you think about and then you put aside and they, some of them just keep suggesting themselves to you again and again. There's something you keep returning to and you kind of, even when you think you've dismissed it, it pops up again and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's really not going away. So maybe I have to do something with it. And then I, and it was weird the how that, it was the drunk woman and the train thing together that was like, oh, yeah, now I see where I can go with that. That happens every now and again. I've had it quite recently, fingers crossed, with an idea. I had a character I've been thinking about for ages but couldn't find the right story for her. And now I think I found the story for her and suddenly it, it just kind of clicks and you sort of see a, a direction that you can go in. Mm. So that's how it happened. But that, 
fact, at the time, I was still, I, I still didn't know. My agent was terribly excited about it, but I was just like, <laughs> you know, we'll see. <laughs> well, I think it must have been a great help to have an agent. I think the one yeah. of the hard things from my own experience of um, a book that didn't make it is that if you have that experience, it can really affect um, how much you trust your own intuition. So that sense yes. of when when things suggest themselves to you, which they do, and it's an extremely fun part of creative writing, is that you go, oh, but didn't I, is that is that right? I mean, maybe I don't know what's mm. right anymore. Maybe because I thought that Absolutely. thing was right and I was wrong. So, and you were saying that your fourth Amy Silver book, you tried to do something more layered and textured. I wonder what you felt about your own intuition at that point. I mean, I had no confidence in myself and my own, my judgment about things anymore. Because I, what I thought I was, I was doing something right, I clearly, it, it didn't work. For me, it, is, it has been hugely important to have somebody to bounce ideas off. And somebody who's, I mean, I'm, again, I'm fortunate because I have an agent. So if you have someone who really knows the market and who's read, who reads everything and knows exactly what you're trying to do, often in a better position and also they're not they're close to it, but they're in a better position to say, yep, no, I think you're on the right track here or not on the right track there. Certainly, I think I would have got started in fiction much earlier in my life if I'd shown work to people, bounced ideas off people. I never did because I, mm-hmm. I was embarrassed to do so and I just think, oh, no, this is probably ridiculous. I'm not going to tell anyone about it. Um, I didn't, you know, belong to writers groups. I didn't do any courses. I didn't do stuff like that. I, I formed a very briefly, I think we had one meeting, um, a writers group with a couple of friends of mine. Just a, and I think even in that, I didn't show any work. I didn't share any work. They shared their work. Okay. Too embarrassed. To so hugely important, I think. And I know not everyone has the luxury of having an agent to find somebody that can give you some sort of feedback on yeah. ideas. Did you always want to be a writer on some level then? For example, when you were a journalist, did you feel some kind of creative writing siren call or and were you writing creatively in your own yeah. time? I'd always done written creatively in my own time, but never shown it to anyone. It almost felt like fantasy. It didn't feel like a real, like anything was ever really going to happen with it. I didn't know people who wrote fiction really. It just didn't seem like something that was very likely to happen. <laughs> Mm. It seems um, pipe dream like to me, but I did enjoy it. I d- How far had you enjoyed it? How far had you got? Had you written much of a manuscript at all? Oh, I'd, some of them went. Some of them, I think, I'd written almost kind of half. And I mean, there were many novels in my twenties and early thirties. I say many novels. I can think of probably like three bit ideas that I worked on for a long time, and I think I probably got to like in each of those projects maybe around forty, fifty thousand words. And I've oh, wow. completely abandoned completely abandoned them and I don't even know if I have any sort of scraps of those. I think were not good. One of the, <laughs> I mean, the first one, I think, the first one was terrible. I often tried to do things that were a bit political in those days and the, it's really, that's not my forte and I don't know why I wanted to do that. I said, I think I wanted to do something serious that you do when you're young, you know, something yeah. important. <laughs> but, yeah. And did you revisit any of that stuff when you started to do either Amy Silver no. or The Girl on the Train or anything like that? I don't think so. I think I had decided that all that stuff was not really worth mining. I, I probably, it probably wasn't completely worth it because just writing all those words will help you somewhat, probably. I, I mean, it is such a long time ago now. I don't, I don't really remember. Well, let's talk briefly about Girl on the Train. I'm sorry. I feel like you must be so utterly bored of talking about this stuff now. Just briefly. It sold on a partial, right? Um, yeah. Of about 30,000 words. I mean, that's pretty incredible in of itself. How did that come about? I know you said that you were 
broke. And so you asked for it to be sold that way. But what was the process like? I mean, your agent must have felt that it was really something to even attempt to sell it that way. Yeah, I was looking at the emails that we sent around that time this morning because I was thinking, I was saying we were talk about this. So there was a kind of a back and forth where I was sending three pages and going, do you think this is right? And she was going, yeah, 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 wait, 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 keep going. And then there was an email when I said to her, look, the world is really at the door. Can we try and sell this? I was obviously really worried at that point about And she said, if you get 40,000 words, then, then I'll get to publish this with so that, that, I assume what I must have done, got 40,000. And then, but I did have the rest of the novel sketched out in quite, not like huge detail, but it, it was clear that I knew where I would go. I didn't yeah. have nothing. Yeah. So that's what we went out with. Yeah, that is unusual and you wouldn't usually do it that way, but I was worried and in trouble. So, What sort of advance do you get on a thing like that, on a partial that's coveted, but nonetheless a partial? It was six figures. But it was low. I mean, it was still, I was nearly just about out of my chair when I heard. <laughs> I was very worried at the time about what, what I was going to do. So it was suddenly just the most enormous sense of relief. But I'm here, I wasn't at a completely unknown quantity. I had already written four novels. So I, it wasn't like I was a daily novelist who hadn't been through this before. And I did have half a book plus the rest. But yeah, it, it is very unusual. But yeah, there, was a, there were a number of publishers interested for that. And obviously you were relieved because of the money and you said that, you you know, you really needed it. But what about the kind of self-doubt aspect? Do you suddenly feel like, no, it's fine. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a rubbish writer. This is the beginning of something new and brilliant. In the, in the uh, sort of the auction bit, the, or the publishers write to you with their pitch, basically, to buy your book. And they all say really, really nice things about what you've written. And it was extraordinary. <laughs> And I actually feel really emotional thinking about it now. It, it, I do remember sitting there at the, at my desk and, and weeping. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it was such a relief. And yeah, it felt really, it felt so great. Even though my agents had been saying, yeah, great, wonderful. I thought, oh, well, of course she's going to say that. You know, she likes me. <laughs> but, um, to have somebody else say, yeah, we love this. I'm so excited about it. We're desperate. We, we really want to. That was yeah, it was a huge boost to my confidence. Of course, you still think, well, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but um, it was, a, yeah, it was an enormous. How do you decide when there are a few people after you all saying lovely things? Do you remember? Again, I had to rely on, on advice because it, obviously you can see that there's a financial thing, but there's also, it's, it's much more about just how we plan to publish. This is where we see it. This is what our marketing strategy would be. And I was sitting there thinking, well, okay, this all sounds great. But you get, you get a feeling, again, I relied on advice from my agent. She was like, well, I think these people might see you, but then this person as well, blah, blah, blah. You have to think about which editors you might work best with. I mean, it's a really hard thing to, to choose. And in the end, you know, you've got to say no to people, which is not very nice either, particularly when they just really nice thing to do. But um, <laughs> it's the way I, I was fortunate again because I... I had an extremely happy experience with my book show. So. What, what an extraordinary thing to happen. At what point did you realise quite how big it was going to be? Because obviously an auction is brilliant, but there are quite a lot of auctions every year. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, 
Girl on the Train, I think now has sold 23 million copies. It sold quite a lot of those in its first six months to a year. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon. And you were, you know, catapulted into being one of the top 10 paid authors of the year or something quite quickly. I mean, what, what a thing. At what point did you kind of sense that that sort of thing was on its way? And at what point did it sort of hit you that you were going to be a really big deal? An, I think it's an, like an accumulation of small of moments rather than one being like, well, I'm, you know, this is going to be huge. But it did, because I've sort of been prepared, you're, you're kind of prepared for it by the, the bug that is building, which is something that the publishers did very well. You're suddenly, you're getting, when you're getting loads of press interest in something, you, you know, and when people are, lots of people are already talking about it. I think it was, it was number one in the US and the UK Possibly not in the first week, but in the second week. So I was treated as a debut author because no one had ever heard me heard of me before. They'd never heard my name. That was huge. And I think the thing that really shocked me was then it was so big in the States because I, I really didn't expect that. I, I didn't expect in the UK either, but I really didn't expect for the US. So to me, it felt like quite a, a smallish book about a, a, you know, a depressed, alcoholic English woman. Didn't feel like something that was going to like go to number one in the, in the States. So... Yeah, and it does feel quite British, you know, yeah, with her titties very, and her... Yeah. It's, very, it's, very, it's very British. Yes, I've said before that the, I think the question I was most asked in my my first US tour was, was it, can you really get gin and tonic in its head? The, the Americans <laughs> were like, what is that? <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, so those number ones were at first, you know, a, a shock and then and my American publisher was like hastily put together a tour and they were, I was constantly getting calls about, oh, yeah, we're reprinting again, we're reprinting again, because they were having, so there was this enormous sense of excitement from other people. And you're kind of sitting at the eye of the storms of me, God, this is weird, you know, but, but you've got so much to do, so you don't really have time to think about it. You just keep going, now that it's you more, 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 tour, tour, tour. And it, I think it's only looking back on it that you, you start to sort of, the numbers also start to almost really, make that much sense to you I didn't know what a, what a normal week of, of, of book sales was <laughs> you know I, just, I had no idea it, it, so it was yeah an accumulation of moments rather than yeah yeah that makes sense hello writerish podcast listener I'm Daniel Ford co-host of the writer's bone podcast and founder of the writer's bone podcast network at least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting but I'm here to talk about our flagship writer's bone we're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word my co-host stephanie ford and our friday morning coffee host caitlin malqui believe that storytelling can excite us educate us and at its best unite us our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds races creeds and experiences since 2014 we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers debut authors screenwriters actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone.
I want to talk to you a little bit about Into the Water, which I've also read. And I, I think you were writing when you were going on these tours and things. You were already into it, mm. weren't you, at this point? Your girl on the train success. I recently read it and I thought it was wonderful. It's quite challenging in a way because it has all of these, it has a lot of um, points of view, but it all comes together brilliantly and it's sort of dark and insightful and elegiac and I I loved it. Uh, And it sold amazingly, but I know that some of the reviews were, some. it was less critically well received than The Girl on the Train. And I wondered how you found all that moving on from this absolute phenomenon to something quite different, both in what you wrote and when you wrote it and how it was received and all that. Yeah, it was it was difficult, that book, because I had started writing it before The Girl on the Day was published. I had actually already started writing something else because there's a big gap between selling a book and app, uh, it, it actually being published, or there was then um, in, in my case. And so I, and I was very keen to get the novel going. You know, I wanted it all done by the time that, you know, Anyway, that was ridiculous. So the, the writing post is very interrupted by all the girl on the train shenanigans and all the touring. And I'm not somebody who finds it easy to write on the fly. I like to be quite sitting at my desk, focused, undisturbed, quiet. So, so that, that writing process was very was difficult for me. I was extremely ambitious in that novel. I think I had 11 points of view. There were all these interlinking stories and timeline, uh, shifting timelines and what have you. I want, I was excited by it. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something sort of that felt sort of bigger in scope. But that was a huge, it was a very big ask. And I, I think I slightly rushed into the novel in my, my sort of anxiety to get, to get words on the page. And as you say, the, the critical reception was, well, it was pretty brutal, I thought. It felt like, it felt like sort of being beaten up in public. Oh, gosh. It was, it was... <laughs> It was very painful. However, as you say, the, the, the sales were still amazing. Um, not anything like to go along the train once, but they were still very good. I think when you've had a really successful novel, it's not that people are necessarily gunning for you, but you are, as most commercial fiction authors aren't reviewed by everybody. You know, you might get one or two reviews here, but it's only very, the very successful ones who get loads of reviews including in things like, you know, I don't know, the new statesman or what have you. So you're being, you're worth being looked at much more closely. You're, you're kind of being given the same attention as a, a big literary fiction writer would, would get. And frankly, yeah, a lot of them are going to beat you up. It, that's how it, that's how it goes. Um, so I just had to take that on the chin. But yeah, it was really painful. So it was horrible. I suppose when you're when you're being reviewed in that way, you know that the follow up to an you know phenomenon commercial fiction book. Basically, there are only a couple of ways that review is going to go. Whatever you know that the meat on the bone says, yes. you're basically going to conclude by saying this is as good as X, or it is, or better, or it's less good. I mean that that's essentially yeah. what people are that you know the shape of the review is going to take in some way, which is not how people normally review. You're being compared Absolutely. to yourself in a very specific way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did drive me crazy that in all of those reviews, at least the first three paragraphs was about the Golan chain, and then it was men they'd get to it and say, <laughs> oh, we don't like this anyway. It was just like, oh, can we not just look at the book? But yeah, I mean. Having said all that, I, you know, I, I'm not really complaining about it. Although it was painful for me, that's what happened. And you should be, if you're, if you're getting reviewed in loads of places, you're lucky anyway. Most people would kill to be reviewed in broadsheet. Well, you know, in, in the big newspapers, um, I'm not called broadsheet anymore. Most people would kill to get reviewed widely. 
So mm. it, it, it's horrible, but it's the way it goes. Um, can I ask you what is maybe quite a strange question for a literary podcast? Do you enjoy writing when you're doing it? Yeah, uh, mostly I do. I do really enjoy it, particularly the beginning of novels where you've got there's all these abilities open to you um, and you can kind of go in any direction and you're making all these connections in your head and you're starting to see the habits how a novel might pan out or you're getting really excited about a character. So that part of it, that, those early attempts at something are always really exciting and really fun. There are often passages where you're, you just sort of hit your stride and it feels amazing and you like, yes. And then oh, there are also periods where I, and I literally sit at my desk and cry because it's so, so bad and so awful. <laughs> yeah, I do enjoy it. I enjoy it very much most of the time. And I'm, I'm aware of how lucky I am to be able to do it full time and not do it only in the mornings and the evenings around a full time job or anything like that. So when you are stuck and crying at your desk or, you know, some <laughs> version of that, what do you do to get yourself out of that feeling? I think really the important thing a lot of the time is to step away, just leave it, go away, do something else, read books that you now read, old favourites read something that, you know, the, the books that you, that made you want to become a writer for that kind of stuff, I think. Also, this is where turning to somebody else for help is a good time if you're really, really stuck and you can't see a way out. Instead of just sitting there going round and round and round and round in your head, not being able to move forward, mm. you know, get some feedback. But often, I think just stepping away and allowing yourself, stop, don't force yourself through it. That is often where things will start to suggest themselves. And they might be quite radical things. Um, and I think you have to entertain those thoughts. But yeah, giving it, not trying, not necessarily trying to force yourself through all the time is often one way of doing it. Do you discard a lot of work? Yes. I mean, particularly the last two novels, there have been big chunks of writing that when I say discard, they might, they may later come back. There might be, you know, things that that's actually just person doesn't belong in their story. They belong somewhere else or scenes or sort of locations that actually, no, we don't need to go there. I don't need that. I'm going to cut that out. But they may come back to, and be used elsewhere or I might, you know, configure them into something completely different. Before I started writing A So Fire Burning, I started another novel, which I worked on for about nine months and then decided I really could not be my way to make it work. And so I abandoned it altogether. Oh, wow. What was, so that what was wrong with it, if you can point it in any way? It was a bleak storyline, but it was just kind of too bleak and I couldn't. I sort of boxed myself in where I couldn't get, give anyone any redemption. And I was just sitting there making myself this one thinking, who wants to read this? The story is awful. It's so <laughs> sad. It's so horrible. And there's no, it's just not, yeah, I just, I, I, I could imagine somebody saying, look, no, so yeah. But there is a character in it who I think I will write about now. I've just changed some of what happens to her. But loads of parts of her character I, I, I'm resurrecting and I think the, the, the location as well. So it was a particular angle that I was following and I still think that there's something interesting in the idea that I, I, I just, yeah, it was too big. The way that characters sometimes persist in your mind, really interesting. I mean, it's, I feel like it comes across as quite trite sometimes when people talk about characters being living, breathing things. But I think, I suppose when you... When you spent a long time with them in your own head, they do feel that way. And I still sort of think about my characters in the, my book that didn't make it and think, I, I wonder if I'm going to do something with you at some point, because at the moment that feels a little painful, but they, but they don't feel done, you know? Yeah, no, I think I don't think you should consign them to 
to to history. I think if somebody, if a character keeps coming back to you, there'll be something in that that you know that you'll figure out eventually. I think, yeah, the the idea that the characters are are sort of independent people. I'm not keen on that idea, but there are ideas that keep coming back to you, and you're like. That there is something in this. There's obviously something in my psyche which I'm attracted to this kind of idea, and I just have to figure out the right way of telling the story or the right story that the character belongs in. I I, I believe that that those that's why those characters stay with you. It's because mm-hmm. that, you know you you still yeah you're not finished with it. You want to do something with it. You want to make you want to find some way of telling the story. Do you think that journalism and fiction or journalism training and fiction writing are helpful to each other or interfere with each other in some way. And I ask that partly because I've sometimes found and people automatically assume that being a journalist would be helpful. But occasionally I found that the kind of quick reward mentality of journalism, you have a deadline, you have an editor, you know quite quickly whether something's good or bad because an editor will tell you or just not hire you again. And so you don't really have to have that much patience. And also as a journalist, you rely a lot on fact and clarity. And when I first started really taking creative writing seriously, it actually felt almost too liberating. Like it was sort of terrifyingly open in a way that journalism yeah. never is because you know your parameters. I wonder what you think of that. I think you're right that there's, there's, there's that I love the, the liberation of that, that I don't need to, to be constrained by fact. But then I, I see what you, that kind of means you can go in any direction and you do have to constrain yourself in some way. And obviously there are sort of constraints. You want it to be feel real world and like fancy, whatever. So perhaps it's a, it's a question of you have to impose your own constraints um, in that sense. I, I get what you mean as well about the, the deadlines and the, that, the instant feedback. Writing novels is a slog. It's a marathon. You have to just accept that it's going to take a really long time. And a lot of it is frustrating. But I guess my way of doing that is I, you know, break things down into like, right, I've got this section. You know, I know you can't necessarily have the, the response to it, but you can you can still give yourself mini deadlines, X words a day, whatever, if that works for you, or I'm going to get into this part of the, you know. So I think you have to do that. Well, I do in any case. I'm, I need sort of small goals to be set, but it is just a slog. And I think when I think back to those Amy Silver years, one of the most important things I got from that was just the experience of getting through 100,000 words beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Because I think what I did in the past all the time and what loads of us do is you get 30,000 words and then you're like, Hmm. It's all that that's that slant there or um, this is not really working. Oh, I know. I can do it a different way. Throw that out, go back, start again. And you just keep hitting the same barrier that sort of of a third of the way through. And I think if you're on deadline for a novel, you just have to go through that and keep going to the other side. You can't keep turning back. That is hard. And there's no shortcut for that. You just got to go through it to get stuff out the other side. Even if the middle part of your novel might be like Right, we're going to return to this later because of <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's good advice. Um, let's talk a bit about a slow fire burning, which is a brilliant book and also has a really great title. I mean, such a good title. I I think it's your best book. Um, yeah, it has these broken characters that are just so rewarding, and this wonderful setting by Regent's Canal with these houseboats. And also going back to something that we said earlier, it's it's funny. And I wanted to ask you about the opening because you have this opening, which is sort of, it's not a prologue, but this sort of little excerpt in italic, which you have periodically throughout the book. But the very first bit, um, your actual opening to the book is this sort of italicized, sort of almost like kind of hackneyed crime scene. 
at the end of which, a kind of page and a half in, you come out of the italics and you have this elderly lady put down this crime scene you've just been reading and say, oh, what a load of old nonsense or something. <laughs> and then you kind of get stuck into your first chapter. And it's so funny. And I wondered what your editor and your agent made of it, because it's quite brave. I feel like it's the kind of risk you can only really take when you're a well-established writer, because I wondered whether you, you or they worried that somebody would pick it up and kind of go, okay, this is, I don't really understand. They think it's a load of old rubbish. Why should I, I'm confused about whether I should appreciate this writing or not. Yeah, I think I was worried at one point that I, I there was a time where I thought I need to get that whole section onto a single page just in case somebody starts and thinks, oh my God, this is awful. I'm not reading the novel without actually getting to that bit where you realize that you're not maybe reading the novel, you're reading something else. Yeah. But um, it, wasn't, it wasn't my original opening. And because I didn't have the sort of book within a book idea right at the start, that developed as I was going on. And I can't actually remember the point at which I decided that, that I would do that, but it, it amused me and it, it amused my editors. They, they, they found it funny. Um, I think we all, at, maybe at that point, we didn't think of it as such a big risk because we had to know the rest of the novel and it all it kind of fit. But yeah, I guess it, it was a risk, but yeah, and maybe it is a, a risk somebody who's already established can take. Yeah, for me, it just it just seems right. I was kind of wanted to do that thing that that you do in in crime novels, where you you open with like the bloody scene, you know, the kind of that thing that entices you in that prologue that entices you in, but but to do it in a different way, um, and to do it kind of in a slightly tongue in cheek way. Yes, and I think it, and I think you really do pull it off, and it really sets the tone that. I mean, the tone of the book isn't tongue in cheek, but it's quite a sort of sophisticated crime thriller in that you, it, it upends quite a lot of things, um, yeah. including the usual kind of straight dark tone of some thrillers. And also something else that upends that I really enjoyed was the sort of dead girl's body trope. And instead you actually have a sort of dead man's body and it's quite visually realized and it's quite intense and I just thought that was really clever. Was that something you kind of had in mind from the outset? Well, I always knew that it was going to be a victim, was going to be a young man. That was the story that I was telling. And then when I was writing it, I was thinking about the ways in which that traditional trope of like a beautiful naked dead woman on page one, who we'd never even care about. She's just a puzzle to be solved. And obviously, this is not quite the same, but there, uh, there were elements of that in that. And I guess maybe one of the things I'm thinking of, is this any better? If you have a beautiful naked dead man, why is that? I mean, he's not actually naked, but what have you, you know, but <laughs> is it any less exploitative? I don't know. But yeah. I was thinking about that. And, and we do get to know him a little bit, and he's not just a puzzle to be solved. He is actually important, and he has agency, and, well, he can't have agency actually in the novel, but we learn about things that he's done in the past, and his character and whatnot. But the book is one of the things I'm thinking about was about crime fiction, about writing crime fiction. There's a novelist in it, there's a reader, there's a bookseller. All my experiences of, of, of reading and being published and being edited and being criticised kind of informed that novel. Some of it has gone into that book as it does. And so I, I was being a bit more playful with the conventions like, of, of crime writing. It was something that I certainly found enjoyable. Yes, I did really like that playfulness. And I'm going to have to scrap my next four questions because you've just answered them. <laughs> um, you have this quote at one point where Theo, who is your writer character, and he's this sort of, he's this kind of obnoxious guy who's quite dismissive of readers, but also sort of painfully thin-skinned, even though he's very arrogant, which I guess is quite a kind of 
common um, <laughs> common thing for some writers. Presumably not yourself, Paula, but um, <laughs> um, but yes, I mean these kind of meta references. You're constantly in dialogue with these other with with crime fiction. Is that because the experience of being a very famous crime writer is kind of never far from your mind now? Well, it was, you know, it was one of the one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. And I and I think the whole like famous side of it, it will go. It's somebody else's turn now. You know, Richard Osman got it. <laughs> Enjoy it, Richard. <laughs> you know, it goes it goes away. So, um, but it was it's one of the things you know, that I've been living through for six years. So yeah, it's in, it's in my mind. I actually like books about books and books about writers. I know not everybody does but I happen to enjoy that. And it worked with this novel. It works what I was trying to do because it's not just, there is like a, there's a plot point to it. It's important in the, the development of the, the, the story is that there is a writer in it who has done something. He's taken somebody's life story and used it as a, as a basis of a novel. And that in itself was an idea I'm interested in. It's like, what are we allowed to take and use? Because that's, again, I think something that you think about all the time. When people tell you stories and you're like, ah, that's interesting. Yeah. And how that might work, you know. And, or you, something terrible happens and you're like, oh, that would be a really good start for a novel, wouldn't it? And then you feel awful about yourself. But, you know, I mean, obviously it's been a big story. Well, I'd say a big story. Big story if you're a writer lately. Um, I'm sure everyone who writes is aware of Kidney Gate and Dole. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, who, is, who is the bad art friend. Yeah, yeah the bad art friend. And when I was I'm reading that, I was just like, oh, this is wonderful, because it was very much what I had been, and I'm not, not a horrible thing to think, but it very much what I'd been thinking about in, when I was talking about fear, taking somebody's idea and somebody's life and making it into their art. And that just, I found it fascinating. But yeah, it, it is actually important from a plot perspective rather than just a game I was playing with myself. Oh, yes, definitely. I don't think it comes across as gimmicky at all. And sorry, I mentioned a quote earlier, and I believe it's Theo, or it might be his wife that says it, but a woman without a man or a child or a puppy to love, she's cold, isn't she? Cold, tragic, dysfunctional. And I feel like that's quite a good good way to sort of summarise, I think, what you're trying to do with a lot of your female characters, which is not give them a cat to save. I don't know if you've heard of, if you've ever read the Save a Cat writing guides, which are useful in some ways, but the idea of that, you know, you must make your female character likable when nobody will want to read about her. Um, And I feel Mm -hmm. like you you eschew that a little bit and and you really pull it off. And is that, would you agree? Well, I'm always told that my character is very unlikable, um, which I kind of find well, I guess sometimes I'm like slightly offended and sometimes I find it funny because I don't find them unlikable. I like them. They are not pretty and pleasing or nurturing. You know, they they, aren't, they don't necessarily fit into those kind of molds, but that doesn't mean that I don't like them. I'm not those things either. So I, I get why people found Rachel infuriating, but of course she's infuriating. She's an alcoholic. They're annoying. They're people who, who, who um, are addicts who keep making the same mistakes can be really frustrating. You can also completely love them as part. It's one of the things that makes them so frustrating is that you know how great, how good they are when they're not drinking or taking drugs or doing whatever. So for me, it's, it's all about making people who feel real and, and three-dimensional. And those people are likely to be just simply dykeable. You know, they are likely to have problems with complications and all sorts of things. Particularly if you, if you are bearing, bear in mind that I am writing a crime novel here. You can't, if everyone were nice, then that's going to be a very short crime novel. So <laughs> yeah, and in any case, I'm not interested in, in writing people who are likeable. I'm interested in writing people who I find fascinating and real. And those tend to be people who perhaps don't fit 
very who are often outsiders who have some problem or issue or something that they need to figure out or who are recovering from a tragedy or a trauma of some sort. That's where you find all the interesting stuff. That's where you find the, the, all the space for conflict and drama and all that kind of thing. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.